Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello to all you medically minded ODs out there. Welcome to this episode of the Mod Pod. We're especially excited about the three articles we have in store for you this month, and we hope you find them as interesting and informative as we did. Ready to hear about burnout, scope of care as it pertains to managing glaucoma, and gaps in vision and healthcare? Good, then we'll jump right in, starting out with, you guessed it, Understanding Physician Burnout, explained by Lori Latowski-Grover, Director of the Center for Eye and Health Outcomes, and a Distinguished Practitioner at the National Academies of Practice. The optometric care environment encompasses the majority of primary eye care in the United States, and we often see a continuum of secondary and tertiary care in our practice settings. Our schedules are packed, the pace and pressures of patient care are demanding, and the encounters we have with our patients often involve a great deal of emotional intensity. Uh, This is something I can speak to personally after decades of treating people with chronic vision loss and special needs. These factors place doctors of optometry and our teams at high risk for physician burnout. Burnout negatively affects physicians, our patients, and our practices. Factors including short appointment times, complex patient cases, electronic health record stressors, lack of control, and poor work-life balance can result in negative health outcomes and even lead us as physicians to abandon our practices. Understanding burnout can help us face the challenges of an evolving healthcare landscape by continuing to deliver high-quality eye care and thriving in a happier, healthier care delivery environment. Burnout syndrome was described in 1981 in the Maslock Burnout Inventory as a measure of three dimensions, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization from work, and lack of sense of personal accomplishment. When this concept was first proposed, there was a widely held belief that burnout was a result of the natures of individual physicians. But as burnout persisted, this perception fell by the wayside. In 2019, the National Academy of Medicine published a report that examined the safety, health, and well-being of clinicians. The authors found that physician burnout is a multifactorial problem that cannot be easily solved. Changes related to technology, regulation, policy, and societal trends have a profound effect on modes of healthcare delivery and, subsequently, the organizations, and us as clinicians who deliver such care. As healthcare professionals, we take oaths pledging to ascribe to the perfect ideals and principles that put patients first. This shared promise to do what is in the best interest of the patient is challenged by changes that occur in our care delivery environments. As clinicians, we often experience a disconnect between available resources like insurance coverage, staff or time limitations, administrative regulations, etc., 
and care delivery demands. According to the authors of the report, the three dimensions of burnout aforementioned are detrimental to quality of care due to poor interactions with burned out clinicians. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, or ARC, the Minimizing Error, Maximizing Outcomes study sponsored by ARC, found that more than half of primary care physicians reported feeling stressed because of time pressures and other work conditions, such as chaotic environments, low control over workplace, and unfavorable organizational culture. In that study, a survey of more than 400 family physicians and general internists who work in 119 ambulatory care clinics was accompanied by a review of medical records of almost 1,800 patients from these clinics for information on medical errors and quality of care. More than half of the physicians reported experiencing time pressures when conducting physical examinations, and almost one-third felt they needed at least 50% more time than was allotted for this function. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In addition, almost one-quarter of those surveyed said they needed at least 50% more time for follow-up appointments. The results of this ARC study reinforced the belief that existing working conditions were strongly associated with physicians' feelings of dissatisfaction, stress, burnout, and intent to leave the practice. Interestingly, quality of patient care was not found to be consistently associated with the doctor's reactions to working conditions. Rather, the doctors were found to act as buffers between patient care and the environment. And when lower quality of care was identified, the investigators found that it was the organizations causing burnout among the clinicians, not the burned out doctors, that led to lower quality of care. Additional follow-up investigations are being conducted to help delineate EHR-related findings contributing to burnout and further identify EHR-related stressors. The lingering COVID-19 pandemic has also affected the welfare of, of all of us as healthcare workers. A recent study showed physician burnout rates spiked to 63% in 2021, demonstrating how the pandemic has contributed to this problem. According to this study, at the end of 2021, almost 63% of physicians reported symptoms of burnout, up from a finding of 38% in 2020. Investigators found that providing care without adequate personal protective equipment and experiencing disruptive economic consequences due to COVID-19 were two factors independently associated with burnout risk. Emotional exhaustion in healthcare workers, which was problematic prior to the pandemic, has become worse compared to prior years. The emotional exhaustion associated with burnout not only puts care quality at risk, but can necessitate additional support for members of the workforce delivering care. Physicians remain at increased risk for burnout relative to professionals in other fields. One study suggested that some doctors were at a greater risk of burnout than others, including physicians in emergency and primary care, as well as female physicians in general. Another study of more than 70 hospitals found that burnout is often a local phenomenon, meaning there is a, quote, social contagion, unquote, factor that places clinicians who are not yet burned out at higher risk of becoming so 
simply by working with those who are. The authors of the NAM report recommended a systems approach to reducing clinician burnout and fostering professional well-being. The report shows that multiple factors produce imbalances in job demands and resources during all stages of a clinician's career. Regulatory and institutional policies, payer requirements, and intrusive difficult technologies all challenge our basic motivations that are essential to us fulfilling our professional goal of delivering high-quality patient care. The report proposes system transformation with meaningful, effective involvement of clinicians, describing the role healthcare organizations must adopt, as well as systems and principles to reduce clinician burnout and foster a better professional well-being. Key burnout-related points made in the report include clinician burnout needs to be tackled in early professional development and special stressors in the learning environment need to be recognized. That stakeholders in the internal environment have an important role to play in preventing clinician burnout as their decisions can result in increased burden and other demands. Therefore, every attempt at alignment and reduction of requirements to reduce redundancy is essential. And technology can either contribute to clinician burnout, such as with poorly designed EHR technologies, or it can help reduce clinician burnout, such as using well-functioning patient communications. At that time, the authors of the ARC report found insufficient evidence to support strong recommendations for interventions, as the evidence for system interventions that significantly address clinician burnout is limited. However, the authors did make the following suggestions that directly address clinicians' perceptions and concerns. Schedule monthly provider meetings focused on work-life issues or clinical topics based on a survey of your staff members on which topics to address. Enhance team functioning through quality improvement projects within the office to engage staff, enhance treatment, enhance teamwork, and reduce the pressure on physicians to be responsible for all aspects of care. Have trained staff perform administrative duties such as entering patient data into EHRs, tracking forms, sending faxes, etc. to give doctors more face time with patients. The need remains for greater attention to be paid to the mental health status of healthcare workers and for better access to be given to required resources to promote their well-being. A 2020 physician survey report founded that 50% of physicians have experienced inappropriate anger, tearfulness, or anxiety as a result of pandemic effects. The ARC report recommends that professional societies, state licensing boards, specialty certification boards, and clinical education and healthcare delivery organizations take steps to reduce the stigma of seeking help for psychological distress. Another potential intervention involves recognizing the features of what are called zero burnout practices and translating them into your own professional environment. A 2021 study highlighted the importance of focusing on leadership and practice culture. Zero burnout practices are those with higher levels of psychological safety and adaptive reserve, um, which is a measure of a practice's capacity for learning and development. 
Compared with high burnout practices, zero burnout practices reported using more quality improvement strategies and were more commonly solo and clinician-owned. They found lower burnout is associated with participatory decision-making and reported that facilitative leadership helps foster emerging leadership skills amongst all members of the practice, in contrast to our more traditional hierarchical leadership models that rely on command and control mechanisms. Facilitative leadership prioritizes fostering relationships, enhancing communication, attending to social influence and power imbalances, assuring psychological safety, and cultivating teamwork. Just as large healthcare organizations are tasked with addressing the systemic complexities of burnout, you and your team can work to implement your own approach to reducing clinician burnout and its risk factors. Openly share your successes with colleagues and within your community so that others can learn from your triumphs and mistakes. Pay attention to emerging information on clinician burnout and adopt self-care approaches so that you and your team can look forward to a new year of delivering patient care in a happier and healthier environment. Such an important topic, really for everyone. For eye care practitioners, hopefully this article gave you some tips to help you take stock of your work environment to identify and reduce risk factors of this common problem. Up next, we'll get a legislative perspective on glaucoma from John Peterson, an optometrist at Insight Vision Group in Boulder, Colorado. But first, let's take a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Well, let's find out what Dr. Peterson and his co-author, Heather Gitchell, an optometrist at South Glen Eye Care in Centennial, Colorado, put together about the changing times and change in scope of practice for optometrists. The word optometry was first used in 1865 by J.W. Frischur in a dissertation on refraction. And in 1901, optometry was established as a licensed profession in Minnesota before other state laws recognized and regulated the practice of optometry. For the next 70 years, optometric scope of practice remained unchanged. But since 1971, there have been significant advances in scope for optometrists in every state across the country. Specifically, there have been 17 optometric scope expansions in the past five years, with three in the past year alone, with 10 states now having laser privileges. The earliest legislated efforts focused on gaining the use of diagnostic and therapeutic pharmaceutical agents, which assisted in the diagnosis of glaucoma, although many states still prohibited optometrists from treating glaucoma. Then came the allowance to manage specific eye conditions, including glaucoma, with some states initially requiring co-management with an ophthalmologist. The most recent efforts to expand scope of practice have revolved around the use of lasers, injections, and the performance of additional in-office procedures such as eyelid lesion removal and corneal cross-linking. 
Being able to offer the first-line treatments for glaucoma along with other advances has enabled optometrists to become the true primary eye care providers. Just as medical education has evolved over time, optometric education has also changed significantly since the inception of the profession. Optometrists have been suboptimally utilized in the healthcare system for decades, and we hope to see that continue to change. In most states, the education optometrists receive exceeds what they are legally allowed to do in practice. Current legislative efforts are simply meant to allow optometrists to fully use their education and training. These efforts have been particularly impactful in glaucoma care. Given the lack of symptoms in the early stages of glaucoma, it is the primary eye care provider who typically identifies and initiates treatment for patients with the disease. Most modern optometrists could not fathom practicing without the ability to treat glaucoma, let alone without the ability to perform tonometry or dilate pupils. Allowing optometrists to provide the full array of first-line glaucoma treatments just makes sense. In addition to using drops in oral medications, laser treatments and slow-release implantable medications should be part of every optometrist treatment toolbox. Virginia Optometrist and American Optometric Association 2022 Optometrist of the Year, Jeffrey Michaels, confirms this. Optometrists are educated, trained, and certified to perform laser glaucoma care. Many states are using 1970s thought processes when it comes to optometry and are behind in adopting change, he commented. Optometric scope expansion is not only important for glaucoma, but also for the future of general eye care in our health system. Numerous articles speak to the looming shortage of ophthalmologists and the growing population of individuals over 65 years of age. Ophthalmologists are best utilized performing cataract surgeries and offering complex high-level surgical care. There is a need for other eye care providers to offer broader scope of in-office care, and optometrists are perfectly fit for this role with their existing training. Optometry has come a long way, and with every step and each new privilege gained, we have exhibited nothing but competence. The relationship between optometry and ophthalmology is well established and could be described fairly as codependent. There are times, especially during the management of patients with glaucoma, when patients need more advanced surgical care and referral to an ophthalmologist. Optometrists provide preoperative and postoperative care for many, if not the majority, of procedures performed by ophthalmologists, and ophthalmologists have trusted optometrists to care for their surgical patients, confident in the OD's ability to identify and treat complications that arise. Accordingly, as optometrists have gained additional privileges, results predictably demonstrate that the patient safety issues suggested by political ophthalmology are just not there. Opening the door for more states to confidently expand the optometric scope and improve access to care in local communities, especially for glaucoma. During our recent legislative effort in Colorado, political ophthalmology, as they have done in other states, not only argued that they had concern for patient safety without adequate evidence to back it up, but also that they believe that there is not an issue with access to care, but we know that to be untrue. According to Kobe Ramsey, in Wyoming, there are no full-time glaucoma specialists and very few full-time ophthalmologists. Being able to offer all treatment options has been great for our patients. Residents of rural Colorado have similar access issues. A rural Colorado patient told his optometrist unequivocally that he would rather go blind from glaucoma than travel to Denver for care. According to the Colorado State Office for Rural Health, rural areas have insufficient access to primary care and other health care services, which result in poorer health outcomes, higher costs, and higher acuity conditions at the time of treatment. 
They also published that rural patients travel to non-local urban hospitals have a cost burden upwards of $600 for a single visit, which creates a major barrier to care. Excess issues are not unique to rural areas. Patients in urban areas can be infected by long waits and duplicative visits. Dr. Jeff Michaels explained, anytime a patient has to be referred for care because an out-of-date law won't allow an optometrist to fully use their education and training, there is an access issue. No person wants to be forced to go to a different doctor for additional tests and exams when their OD is capable of providing the treatment in office. Glaucoma technology is evolving, and as primary eye care providers, optometrists must stay up to speed. Optometric laser and surgical courses are routinely offered at Northeastern State University Oklahoma College of Optometry and University of Pikeville Kentucky College of Optometry and periodically at other states around the country, providing the opportunity for practitioners to stay up to date and refresh their training. Remember, it's up to each optometrist to stay apprised of current procedures and protocols. Optometrists are the first to diagnose, manage, and treat glaucoma for the majority of patients in the United States. It is important that optometrists have a full set of tools available to manage their patients. As stated earlier, recent scope expansions only allow optometrists to practice to the level of their education and training. The various advanced procedures courses most states require to ensure competency are an extension of current education and training rather than an introduction of new knowledge. The techniques, safety protocols, and management of complications for these procedures are built into current optometric education and have been for decades. The basic components of the instruments used for the laser procedures are identical to the equipment we use daily. Although a compromise to patient safety continues to be the primary argument political ophthalmology raises, nationwide data show the opposite to be true. There have been more than 100,000 laser procedures safely performed by optometrists in Oklahoma, Kentucky, and Louisiana alone. Tens of thousands more have been performed in the six states that followed. Arkansas optometrists performed 1,000 procedures in the first nine months after they received scope expansion. There has been no increase in malpractice rates or claims in states that have expanded scope to high levels, according to Locked In Affinity, the largest provider of optometrist malpractice insurance in the United States. The National Provider Database has shown no increase in judgments or actions against optometrists, and there has never been a repeal of a optometric scope expansion in the country by any state legislature. The future of glaucoma management depends on a robust team of well-trained eye care providers who offer a diverse array of treatment options. A growing number of states are moving forward to improve access to care in their communities by allowing optometrists to practice at the top of their education. You can help keep progress moving by staying up to date with the latest news, taking courses to keep your skills sharp, or even getting involved with your local state optometric associations. Are you inspired to get more involved, or maybe you already are? Whatever your answer, you can also rely on Modern Optometry and our news site, iWire.news, to keep you up to date. Okay, let's get to the last article of the episode on disparities in care for patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Here's Katie Connolly, a clinical associate professor, chief of pediatric and binocular vision service, and director of the Myopia Management Clinic at Indiana University School of Optometry. As the name suggests, intellectual and developmental disabilities, which is commonly shortened to IDDs, encompass intellectual disabilities as well as developmental disabilities. 
Examples of developmental disabilities include attention deficit or hyperactivity disorder, blindness, learning disability, and many more. Think about the child who is born with normal cognition, but they're born with sclerocornea in both eyes, and so have blindness from an early age in life. In the United States, approximately 17% of children have some form of developmental disability, and approximately 1.2% have an intellectual disability. Because individuals living with IDD have greater healthcare needs than the neurotypical population, and they still make up a large portion of the general population, it's essential that optometrists be equipped to care for this population. Patients living with IDs have a 1.5 times higher rate of diabetes, and they die at a much younger age than the rest of the general population. In a study that was conducted in Australia, those with IDs had a median life expectancy of 54 compared to 81 years of age in a comparison cohort. Of these deaths in the population in those with IDs, 37% have been shown to be preventable. This really highlights the fact that the healthcare system has failed to meet the needs of these patients. These are just a few of the staggering statistics that cause us to evaluate what barriers exist so that we as healthcare providers can ensure safe and quality healthcare for those living with IDs. An intellectual disability is a neurodevelopmental disorder that begins in childhood and causes deficits in intellectual and adaptive function. Intellectual function is the general ability to reason, problem solve, plan, and use abstract thinking. Intellectual function is key to both academic learning and effective learning from experience. While as adaptive function is a collection of conceptual, social, and practical skills that we use in our day-to-day lives. Some examples include understanding and following social rules, participating in family and social activities, and completing daily living tasks such as eating, cleaning, and other activities that are necessary for independent living. This means then that individuals living with ID have trouble learning from complex, learning complex information, learning from experience, which is really critical, adapting to new settings, and applying knowledge. Ultimately, all of these issues can result in an independent for that person to function independently. The severity of an ID varies, and the disorder is characterized as mild to moderate, profound, or severe. Mild to moderate ID or IDD comprises most cases. These individuals need minimal support and can often take care of themselves and learn basic life skills. Frequently, individuals are not diagnosed with ID until they are school-aged because the learning environment really starts to highlight their delay in development. Those living with profound ID, those are folks that are unable to live independently, they need close and constant supervision, and have extremely impaired communication skills. People living with severe ID typically have a major delay in development and have impaired communication skills. They need supervision in social settings, but they can learn simple daily routines and don't need to have as much care and attention as someone with profound ID. Gaps in our healthcare system result in improper care and can lead to many individuals with IDD not feeling comfortable seeing a doctor. It starts really with the perception that doctors, caregivers, and healthcare workers have about those with IDD. For example, in the past, there was frequent use of shaming terminology, for example, mental retardation, that was used in general society, which led to conscious and unconscious bias. Now there's a concerted effort for all of us to be mindful of the words we use through many people's efforts. We also now recognize the positive contributions to society that those living with IDD can really make if given the appropriate resources and opportunities. A little bit of history now too is before the 1970s, people living with IDDs were often institutionalized and segmented away from general society. This further ingrained both conscious and unconscious bias of this population. In the 1970s, there was a movement to deinstitutionalize and integrate care and living throughout the community. 
Though this was a positive movement overall, the problem was that the community healthcare system really was not ready for inclusion and still hasn't fully caught up. So the reality in healthcare now is that those living with IDDs compared to the neurotypical population have decreased access to preventative care, inadequate healthcare screenings, impaired communication with providers, social barriers, lack of research for their healthcare needs, and lack of training for healthcare providers. And this has been shown in numerous studies with the, between different groups all across the world. And this unfortunately then results in undiagnosed problems, inappropriate treatments being used, and ultimately reduced quality of life and early mortality from preventable causes. As mentioned earlier, an unbelievable 37% of deaths that occur in the IDD population could have been prevented. Many of these preventable deaths have been linked to healthcare providers failing to recognize health needs, diagnostic overshadowing, off-label use of antipsychotic medications for poor behavior, and other complex issues such as poverty and unemployment. Solutions to these issues start with the training and attitude of healthcare providers, many of whom have a negative attitude towards working and living with working with those that are living with IDDs. Additionally, the curriculum in medical schools is not standardized across programs and countries, which results in variability then amongst providers. Studies have shown that providers feel that more didactic and hands-on training is needed, but despite this, many training programs have not drastically altered their clinical training programs. And this was really highlighted by a, a group that studied the educational system in Australia. Additionally, many licensed providers have not received continuing education on caring for those living with ID since graduating, since graduating even though they work with this patient population on a day-to-day -day basis. A majority of medical students that were surveyed also felt that primary care should be provided by specialists in ID. Although that might sound good in theory, if you think about really the reality of that, the logistics needed for that are nearly impossible. Those that have IDs live in every community, so they need and they deserve quality care close to home. They shouldn't have to seek out specialists for basic primary health care needs. So this means then that all community providers, for example, primary care providers, optometrists, dentists, we all need to serve this population and we really can't shy away from it. Although many of the problems discussed here are super complex and require systematic change, one simple little thing you can do in your practice is break down communication barriers in the examination room. A big challenge when working with those living with ID is that the change in doctor-patient communication. Because it's challenging, right? We've all experienced that in our practices and working with several populations, but this being one of the more challenging populations. Because those living with IDDs communicate differently, or even in some profound cases, hardly communicate at all, which means that you need to alter how you provide care. You really can't rely heavily on patient history or subjective responses to determine if, if something is wrong. You can't always rely on typical pain responses or body language to determine how much an ailment is affecting someone. What you can rely on, though, is your clinical experience and your training. You've seen countless of patients that have, that have had similar objective findings, and they all present typically, right, with similar levels of discomfort. And so the person in front of you then that has those objective findings, for example, you know, your, your retinoscopy is minus two, this person is also probably struggling, even if they can't quite communicate that to you the way that others have. If their daily activities aren't currently very engaging, you really don't know what their potential is if they weren't burdened by a vision disorder. And that's something I've really noticed when working with students and working with other doctors, especially with the Special Olympics, is a reluctancy to treat because they think, well, their activities of daily living really aren't very involved. But you don't know what the potential you know, would be for that individual if you were to correct their myopia, for example. 
So don't only think about their current state, think about the simple things in their lives that could be better or easier if they had improved vision. And because communication is is impaired in this population, you should probably provide eye care more frequently than you would to the rest of the population. So a patient that comes to mind is is someone I saw a couple years ago, and they started acting differently in their care home about two months before our visit. This gentleman had experienced a retinal attachment, but he was unable to communicate a change in vision to his his caregivers at his home, and so care was delayed. It wasn't recognized right away, and that was because there was inconsistency in caregivers at the home. Whereas if that person had been under the care of the same person day to day, they probably would have noticed some difference in their affect, difference in their body language. Eventually, someone was astute and did recognize this change in the individual and took him to see us at the eye doctor. And so that experience really motivated me to realize that, one, I need to dilate all of my patients living with IDDs yearly because they are less likely to communicate to me when they're having flashes and floaters, for example. And it reminds me not to delay office visits because they may be uncomfortable for me, it's challenging to examine, or it may be uncomfortable for the patient because as we probably all experience, it certainly can be distressful for those living with IDDs to go through an eye exam. If anything, though, those with impaired communication really need more frequent objective assessments that focus on prevention and improving their quality of life. So I challenge you to learn more about inclusive health and care for all members of your community equally. What an important topic. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how we're doing, so be sure to rate and or review us on whatever platform you use to follow and subscribe to podcasts. You can also reach the editors directly by email at kroman at bmctoday.com. That does it for this episode of The Mod Pod. We'd like to thank Drs. Grover, Peterson, and Connolly for taking the time to record their articles. If you have any questions for them, you can either find their contact information on the online versions of their articles or you can send your inquiries to me at kroman at bmctoday.com. You can also send your article ideas and other feedback to me at that address. Otherwise, I'll meet you back here next month. Until then, be well.